Welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, we're talking to author Rebecca Mae Johnson about their nonfiction collection, Small Fires. Rebecca has published essays, reviews, and nonfiction with Granta, Times Literary Supplement, and Daunt Books Publishing, among others, and is an editor at trailblazing food publication, Vittles. Small Fires is her first book. Why do we cook? Is it just to feed ourselves and others, or is there something more revolutionary going on? In Small Fires, Rebecca Mae Johnson reinvents cooking. That simple act of rolling up our sleeves, wielding a knife, spattering red hot sauce on our books as a way of experiencing ourselves in the world. Cooking is thinking about the liberating constraint of tying apron strings, the transformative dynamics of shared meals, the meaning of appetite and bodily pleasure, the wild subversiveness of the recipe beyond words or control. Small fires shows us the radical potential of the thing we do every day, the power of small fires burning everywhere. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, I just, I felt so much of this book as a home cook myself. Um, It very much gets to the heart of the thing. You know, pro chefs obviously share a passion for the act, but restaurant kitchens are just such a totally different environment. It's, It's a lot more formulaic and mathematical and like strict in a, in a, in a restaurant kitchen, whereas cooking in a home kitchen holds a lot more intimacy. Um, so there's obviously so much reward in the act and I know it, I feel it, I do it, but it's hard to translate. Um, so many of my friends are just not as inclined to do the same and opt for ordering in, which has its own pleasures, of course. And I guess with all this in mind, what would you tell someone who's hesitant to cook at home? Oh, advice. (laughs) Tricky. Um, (laughs) Um, I guess if you're able to see it, uh, engaging with a recipe as a form of, of play, maybe to not be in the way that play brings a kind of openness to an act. I think there's often that fear of failure that people have, um, which can lead people to kind of fixate on endings before they've even begun something um, and bad endings, I guess, is what anxiety fixates on. Um, so if you can have that openness to the ingredients, to the process and allow, you know, the recipe to give you a safe space to play with those ingredients. Um, it can be hard at first as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of information in a recipe and to be forgiving of yourself you know, it's like learning a new language. There's a sort of brain muscle uh, that is being tried out um, when you cook something for the first time. And so it can feel strange at first and it can feel unfamiliar, but it can also be very revelatory and rewarding. But I think being nice to yourself is critical to trying anything new if you're feeling a bit anxious about it. And there is a reward, even if even if yeah. there's a fear of failure, there is a reward, isn't it? Isn't there? I mean, I think there is. You think there is, I believe. Yeah. I mean, if, if it works out and you, you know, there's a reward of dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and also that sense of um, some kind of enfranchisement to do with 
what you can do with your hands and how you can give yourself pleasure. Any form of self-pleasuring also requires patience to find out as well. <laughs> and the cooking's no different in that sense. Um, but, you know, the rewards can be great. <laughs> I love that. I love the tying in of eroticism to the sort of domesticated everyday act mm. that happens that happens in the text. Um, on page 12, you write, <clears throat> if food and thinking coincide, it is an image of men who have been served dinner talking face-to-face over the table. Do you think we would have found a way to cultivate discourse without normalizing the idea of a sit-down meal? It's so intertwined together, but I'm sort of wondering if it's like almost like literally dependent on each other. Well, the idea of, of a conversation and a sit-down meal being kind of the way that we favor dialogue and discourse and the way that that's tied into literally let's go grab a bite or have a coffee or do a dinner or yeah, get a drink. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the table provides a space of engagement and, and interaction. And I guess going back to, you know, Plato's symposium, mm-hmm. uh, the dinner part, you know, people sitting around, you know, the central space of the table talking to each other Um I guess what's nice or can be nice is if you can find a way to make a table to speak with people that you give each, give each other space, um, which, you know, everyone can be sat around a table, but that doesn't, and it, it might look equal or symmetrical, but it's often not the case. <laughs> um, can you say more there? I guess, you know, a table is also a kind of theatre of encounter and is and is subject to a similar kind of uh, structural oppressions as, as, as other kinds of spaces, public spaces and things like that. And um, the dinner table is also a kind of historically kind of a civilising space in the, in the sense of enforcing, enforcing um, state and cultural norms in a way that can be oppressive. And there's a great novel by Joseph Roth, an Austrian writer, called The Radetzky March, which is about how the Austrian Empire in the 19th century was kind of um, the the sort of cultural norms that fl- flowed from the emperor were enforced through um, the table, uh, through this ritualized meal that was repeated in households all over the empire during that period and certain dishes that were known to be um, the favourite dishes of of, of, um, of the emperor and, th- and things like that. And the decline of the empire is mirrored in the decline of that, that meal ritual in the book. Um, so that's a kind of grand scale of it. But but anyway, those, those meals have been conducted in private homes, but it was a kind of in dialogue with public politics in that sense. Um, so, yeah, tables can be great, great spaces to have really exciting conversations with your friends and, and people you choose to be with. They can also be spaces of oppression. And, you know, it's good to be wary of over, over idealizing, you know, for example, the family table or whatever, you know. Uh, Sophie Lewis um, writes very well about the oppressions of, of the family as a concept and a, as a lived experience and a political unit. And I think that that can be seen in, in family dynamics around the table as well. Like speaking to that, you know, this nature of oppression that and you, you do go into this in the book. Um, 
you know, we talk about the gendered aspects of, of domestic cooking and, and if so much cooking is relegated to the domestic and thus to women, in what ways can and or do women take up cooking as a rebellious act against the patriarchy? Again, I'm specifically thinking of home cooks here. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't like to speak for oh, on behalf of other people or something, but um, I think if, I, I guess in the book, I make an attempt to, in a way, give people the tools to to think about it as I myself am working it out myself. <laughs> about how to do that uh, using the work of political thinkers like sorry, Silvia Federici, for example, mm-hmm. the Marxist feminist who, along with other feminists of the period in the 70s, identified um, the very manipulative position that many women are placed in whereby domestic labour, including cooking, cleaning, also fucking, caring, are... Um, are made into an expression of love, kind of ideologically in the space of the home. So therefore, if you want to withdraw that labour, because that's what it is, it's made equivalent to withdrawing love. And disentangling the knotty relationship between love and labour in domestic work, I think is a critical first step in feeling empowered or liberated or politically engaged in the kitchen uh, knowing why you're doing something is hard especially if you've grown up in a culture where these the, the stuff which is work which requires practice and knowledge and uh, is tiring often um, is made almost like a sort of feminine emanation that's almost done unthinkingly or as a gesture of love and of course Cooking can be a gesture of love, but it isn't exclusively a gesture of love. And it's, it, can, it can be loving, but it's still work. And it still, you know, reproduces bodies across the land <laughs> through its enactment. Um, that's not to say that because of that, cooking is in itself essentially anti-feminist or bad or existentially problematic in itself. It's just in the in the context of capitalism, in the context of the home, which is a typically unwaged or low-waged space. <clears throat> um, I think, yeah, cooking has a very complicated status. And, you know, I've heard many women uh, talk about feeling, you know, guilty about not wanting to cook, for example, or difficulty around that, uh, labor um and a sort of yeah you know this difficulty of of resisting that labor because of this emotional burden that it's associated with as well it's confusing and i think you know these these models of domestic labor and capitalism are sort of intended to be confusing in a way and also your own pleasure gets lost in that equation because it's usually in the service of others, it's in the service of reproducing the worker, the child, etc. And where are you left in all of that? Um, so, yeah, and I, I love the, the um, there's a video I cite 
right towards the end of the book by the artist Raju Rage called Eat While You Feed, question mark. Um, and it's a film of a meal being made. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's a voiceover of uh, Raju is asking um, one of the women in the video questions about cooking and her relationship with cooking. It's an, it's an older, an older woman, a South Asian British woman. And um, she says, when I grew up, you know, I was taught just to serve others, to cook for others. But now I'm older, you know, I eat while I feed others. I look after myself as well. And also she talks about other ways. She takes time back for herself, massaging her hands at certain times of day, you know, uh, giving time over to pleasure for herself, playing kind of board, board games and things like that. And so not not losing yourself in that work and and only being a worker with no with no self that, that's sort of present, I think, is... Um, also important to sort of reclaiming the kitchen. I mean, you've said so much there. And, and, and what I was thinking about, and, you know, another question I have written down here is, you know, in this book, you navigate the ways in which cooking is so deeply gendered and its role as, you know, quote unquote work or quote unquote non-work. But I think, I think the answer I ask, is this in a strictly capital framework? And I think the answer is sort of yes, but I'm wondering if there's ways in which work you know, labor can still operate as non-work. And by that, I mean joy, um, because that is my experience personally. And I myself have a hard time sort of understanding it. So I certainly don't expect you to have an easy answer, but you seem like the right person to oh, throw the question back to. These are big questions. Yes. <laughs> and uh, especially, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's the end of my working day on a Friday where I live in the UK. So everything feels tiring to me at this point, at this point. And I ate, I have to admit, I ate a bowl of cereal for lunch. Um, oh no. I was, I was tired and I was, I was working and I'm giving birth in a month. So like, oh my, everything's, okay. Yeah. Everything's extra tiring. And I'm anticipating that being a really transitional moment with my relationship with feeding as well, which I have yet to understand. Um, oh man. Yeah. I want to talk about that. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I'll be reading a lot of psychoanalysts. I guess. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I guess another way of thinking about it is um, my my peers are often like, oh my God, aren't you so tired? Like after mm. work, after five, and you don't want to mm. like make this, do this elaborate, laborious thing. But I literally... I mean, there are obviously many times where I'm like, yeah, absolutely mm. not. But I genuinely find joy in the in the labor of it. Um, yeah. Or else, or else, yes, why would I be putting in this work on a tired evening, you know? Mm. Yeah, I guess doing things that aren't... Um, of course, and I, I love cooking as well. And and that's kind of one of the things I'm really trying to understand in the book. It's been completely revelatory and, it, and, it's, and it's sensory and it gives pleasure to the body. And that it has that great, um, it's quite like a similar experience to moments of, of, of revelation when writing or doing any other kind of artistic practice, when you have that sense of um, unalienation. <laughs> through making um and that real kind of sense of your own of your own powers that 
which is a thing that we really want to liberate from capitalism, that real sense of powers of, of transformation that we all have within us, in our in our minds and in mm-hmm. our hands and, and in our bodies and, and everything. Um and when you can you can access, you know, even in capitalism you can access fragments of those of those things. And I think also doing something that's kind of quote unquote useless mm. within the context of capitalism and and it's not in the sense that it's not necessarily well it can be feeding a family but it could just be to feed yourself or it's not for an employer it's not whatever it's I guess yeah when when you're deeply engaged in a process in that way it's 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 magical (laughs) I I mean I'm I'm struggling to find a kind of a clear pathway through this I probably need to go and think about it some more um it's hard but, to put into words. It yeah. really is. Mm-hmm. If I think, yeah, I think, t- you know, I think time is a factor. If if you have the time to be really present to yourself and engage with those processes and you're not being pulled away in this sort of anxious stress towards work or other things like that, Um cooking can bring great moments of insight and joy and revelation and pleasure to the body. When you are cooking, do you feel particularly feminine? Why or why not? Mm-hmm. Funny, I almost sort of internally flinched when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I, do, I don't really know what it is to feel, what it is it to feel feminine? I don't know. I have such an anxiety, I have such a discomfort around that mm-hmm. idea. Uh, of fem- of being feminine myself that um yes yeah, so I, I don't know what i honestly don't know i've i've had a real i feel a sort of um absence around a resp- i have a sort of absence of a response to or an absence of identification mm-hmm. uh and i have had for a long time around the word woman or feminine for, for me mm-hmm. um and that's partly and I kind of meant to refer to this in the book but when I was I don't know 19 or something and I read Judith Butler's Gender Trouble mm-hmm. the work that Butler does to the in that text to sort of de-essentialize gender was so liberating for me and the sort of freeing of the body or or something or from yeah, from essentialized concepts of gender tied to that you have to be a certain way or be a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And the sort of dis- the framing of the body and genitalia and everything through discourse that isn't sort of, is a, you know, a constructive language and not somehow essentially or deeply true necessarily. Um, I often actually feel quite macho, to be honest, in the kitchen. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I write a bit about this in the apron section or the earlier bit of the book about, you know, there's such physicality and machismo to cooking and wielding a knife. You're literally playing with fire, wielding a knife, hitting things, cutting things. It's sweaty often. It is not, these are not tropes one associates with traditional femininity necessarily. Um, and in a way, the sort of aesthetic domestication of cooking is a, I feel like is an attempt to reassure the patriarchy of uh, 
of the um, safety of cooking. Like, yeah, she, she's they, you know, they've got knives, but don't worry, they're not going to murder you. <laughs> right. Uh, even though they could, they probably have the skills to do, you know, a really neat job. No, I'm joking, but uh, but not really joking. Um, yeah, the kind of neutering of of that labour as a kind of potential threat through its domestication aesthetically. Which is bound up with femininity and the uh, the feminine being something made to be unthreatening in its framing. Um, I think I definitely in my sort of late teens, early twenties, had some femphobia going on for myself as well, mm-hmm. to do with navigating gender myself and re- resisting things that I'd been made to feel um, about myself you know, told you will be a certain way because of your gender or whatever, mm-hmm. which I felt deeply averse to. <clears throat> so in that classic thing of, I don't know, people being like, I hate pink or whatever, is some kind of tokenistic way to reject that uh, when you're kind of coming of age or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and But now I have a pink book, so... but. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> figuring out all this stuff t- took a while um anyway I've just gone on a lot there but um so I would not say I feel feminine in the kitchen I feel actually more masculine in the kitchen mm-hmm. to be honest mm-hmm. yeah um it's so funny so on page 33 you write uh, the choice is not between burning down the kitchen or revisiting in a nostalgic dream state. That is a false binary. It is bad faith to burn your grandmother's archive because she wasn't as free as you, which I just loved that phrase. Um, and, you know, this is another biased reading on my end, but I come from this, you know, immigrant, ethnic, Southeast Asian background and I sort of have the sense that the patriarchy fucked up so to speak by designing the kitchen as punishment or oppressive for women because really it's just put women in training and far ahead uh, when it comes to a very impressive and honestly honestly like necessary task of a good meal and I'm lucky enough to have a father who like was never feared the domestic and is actually quite a good cook himself but I definitely come from a lineage where exactly as you write in the book it was often considered women's work and and degraded as such, but now I'm like my my maternal side are like full of badasses who are <laughs> so evolved in in this particular field, and so it got me thinking: is a thing only oppressive if named as such? Well, that's very restrictive a way of saying it, but do you know what I mean? Like, is are is it possible that things are inherently oppressive, or do we often? treat them as such just because they're named as oppressive i think it's to do with consent um Mm -hmm. have people chosen to be in that space Mm -hmm. um do they want do they have a choice about being in that space if you don't have a choice about being in a space and performing work Mm -hmm. um it's a form of imprisonment (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh of, of, of sorts however it's enforced you know whether it's enforced through actual well, through risk of violence or actual violence, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in a way, risk of violence and actual violence are the same thing in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think in that the, the bit that you just read out from the book, yeah, I I didn't. However, within these spaces of constraint that women have historically been in, confined to, one might say. Um, 
it's they have been subjects doing incredible things using their minds etc mm-hmm. even in constrained circumstances oppressed even in circumstances of oppression possibly finding pleasure sometimes not always but sometimes in those things so you know developing skills and cooking building a huge wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. um about mm-hmm. that space so the kitchen and so um it felt important to uh point out the structural oppre- structural oppressions that have you know made it not a ma- not something that people have consented to to be in that mm-hmm. space they haven't to dismantle those things but also not to throw away the lives and the labor and the intelligence of those that those women have performed lived within those spaces because then you're not in a way you're you're um, colluding with the oppressor in doing that <laughs> mm-hmm. because you're not valuing their lives and their labor and their intelligence mm-hmm. so it's kind of dismantling the structure but retaining the value and the magic of, of those lives mm-hmm. not making not degrading those lives through conspiring with the oppressor in in that kind of de- degradation of that of that labor that they've done um i mean it's complicated yeah sure um but yeah so i, I wanted to you know and nostalgia as well nostalgia is very guilty of of idealizing the prison mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and or you know idealizing spaces of oppression uh or not thinking about it or forgetting that they were there um so it's right but it's also it's, sort of, or, it, yeah it's sort of an ignorance is bliss situation you know, my grandmother didn't yeah. think of this as an oppressive environment. Of course, we know better mm-hmm. now, but like she never thought of it that way. And now she just, you know, now, by now, I mean, yeah. like in her later life, she sort of just thought of herself as a badass in the kitchen and she was. But of course, there are so many other more layers to it. And, well. and maybe she, and maybe she, I mean, maybe she did just take pleasure in it and maybe she didn't want to do mm-hmm. it. No. Um, I think there's the other thing is that with the idealization of grandmother labor that happens and it doesn't sound like it happens in your family, but just because your grandmother can make a delicious cake, mm-hmm. she might still fucking hate cooking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so there's that complicated thing where people have these skills that can, you can eat it and be like, this is delicious. But you, what you need to do is to listen to the women. Yeah. You know, that's, and, and, and did she, does she want to do it? Does she like doing it? Is she proud of it? It sounds like some of the women of previous generations in your family are proud of it and have enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But ignorance is also, it, it really is bliss. Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, insulting anyone when I say that. And certainly there are other things that they hate. They hate the hours of labor of them in the kitchen, sweating up a storm. And, you know, especially if it's met with a lack of gratitude, um, there's a lot of things yes. at play for sure. But um, it's just funny because I don't think she would have ever labeled herself as oppressed with regards to those skills in particular and yet, in many ways, she still was. Obviously, we have, you know, more resources than her, than her and sort of more of an education. But um, I, I, guess, I guess it just always sort of felt like this, this anti- 
antiquated idea of patriarchy that was like, we feel so sorry for you. You have to Mm. go do this thing. And it's like, for many people, definitely not all, as you've pointed out, but for many people, maybe they didn't feel like they were being punished. Maybe they just were being told, oh, this is a really dehumanizing thing for you to be in charge of. And now we're at a point where it certainly doesn't have to read that way. Yeah, and, and positioning people as a victim mm-hmm. or, or, you know, pity isn't always a kind of very um, liberatory thing mm-hmm. to think, you know, because it of the what, what the kind of power dynamic that that sets up between the person who's pitying the other person or the person who's seen as, you know, um, it kind of it can, it can set up a very, as you say, patronizing kind of power dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to ask, so what about the relationship between cooking and writing? So, you know, food writing, like what about that relationship? Because for me, again, it was very, can you tell that I had a huge bias reading this book? I read a lot of myself in this book, Um, but it was very much an oral tradition in my background and sometimes frustratingly so because that's not always easy to translate. So it made me really think about something you, you talk a lot about in this book. What does writing down a recipe and having it read do? Yeah. Um, it's so complicated. Uh, again, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, writing down a recipe makes it possible to disseminate a recipe widely, to share it, to, you know, allow others to reenact gestures in a, in a different place and time to when they were originally enacted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, across mm-hmm. centuries, across continents, etc. Um, however, as we know now, especially because of, you know, the internet in the last 20, 30 years or or whatever, um, whilst this can be great and can give many hands the power to make dishes and, and you know, as a great educational force in the way that, that you know, that, that reading and printing and distribution of texts is, um, there's also a power in withholding that knowledge. <laughs> as well uh, and mm-hmm. refusing to transmit knowledge because of how knowledge gets used and picked up and appropriated and profited from uh, as well and there's actually a writer um, who uh, writes for Vittles where I'm an editor so we recently started a, a series of recipe columns <clears throat> and one of the writers uh, called Melek Erdal is from a, a Kurdish background and when she grew up in Turkey, um, Kurdish language was illegal. Um, it was legal to listen to Turkish radio, and the, but there were no books in the language. Mm-hmm. And so the knowledge was transmitted gesturally and, and through speech rather than through printed texts. And the women in the kitchens were kind of, in a way, the privacy of that space made the kitchen a real kind of guardian space for that culture and the language culture and the knowledge. Um, and so she expressed in her first column that she wrote for us this great unease she had with writing down the recipes for the first time um, because of the kind of, you know, the his, language uh, printed text had not been the, their friend. 
if, if they'd have relied on printed texts, it would have died. That that that, like, that knowledge would have died. Um, and it was the the inhabitation of those recipes through gesture, which ensured their ongoing life. And so, mm-hmm. books weren't enough for that knowledge. It had to be lived out. Um, however, uh, the recipe I write about cooking in the book is something I first encountered as text and then inhabited as gesture. And then, you know, I probably read the text, cooked from it as a text a handful of times of the hundreds and thousands of times I've cooked it. Um, And in a way, I think with the interesting thing about recipes, they're very hard to locate, really. I think that's where is a recipe? When is a recipe? You know, is it the text? Is it the gesture? Is it the dish? Is it, you know, mm-hmm. wh- where is it in time? Where it, where is it in space? It's, it's very hard to, to know in a way. Um, and you, you can't return to the original recipe really because, well, did it originate with a text or did it originate with someone cooking something? And then the text is sort of an annotation in a way of life of something being in that, uh, acted out. So, um, I do find it very exciting, the interplay between writing and performance, writing and life, that the recipe kind of plays out and it's played out in recipes. And I find it exciting to think about how um, it, with the recipe, life is always being returned to the text through its enactment and, and changed as well, changing language as well through those enactments. In a kind of Derrida sense, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it also reinvigorates language as a lib thing mm-hmm. because it only has meaning in relation to its performance, and I find that kind of exciting. I find it exciting too. In terms of embracing the intimacy of home cooking, the book is also very much directed to a specific you. Um, there's a lot of love designated to this you. Um, I have regular dinners in my house, as I've mentioned, because I love to feed my friends. And so I specifically related to this idea of you. You know, you said you didn't like cilantro, so I remembered that, etc. And I have love for you and I want to bring you joy. And writers tend to shy away from second-person narratives because they are so direct in addressing to in the way they address the reader. And Mm -hmm. I guess sort of two-part a question is like, and I, I, I sort of, I'm going to intimate that guess that you're not going to answer this first one, but you know, a, who are you directly speaking to when you write this book, when you wrote this book? And if Mm. you'd rather not answer that, why direct them as the you, whoever they are? Mm. Well, I can non explicitly tell you the you is in fact, many people. Right. Um, which for me has several reasons. Um, I wanted to dismantle um, in people. I, I didn't want the reader to perceive relationships through heteronormative hierarchies. Mm-hmm. So to give different weight to whether I was cooking for someone I was in a romantic relationship or having a flirtation with or a friend mm-hmm. or someone I didn't know. Um, and to kind of order that in a particular way and to um because I 
for me, there is an erotics and an intimacy in kind of all all of those um, interactions and culinary moments. Um, so I wanted a kind of, I wanted that anonymity and to obfuscate because I, you know, because there's an er- there's erotics in friendship. There's a totally unerotic, mm-hmm. you no, know, though. Um, and not to be like, oh, that person. They're not fucking. So she's not fucking that person. So this is not a sexy meal. They are fucking this person. Mm-hmm. It is, a, you know, whatever. I, I want mm-hmm. the the, in, the kind of constant presence of erotics. To, to be allowed to flow freely in the text and without being kind of shut down by heteronormativity. So that's why I chose the you partly. Um, I also was just very excited or lucky. And I, you know, I really allowed chance into the writing of this book in so many ways, but I'm on Anne, the writer Anne Boyer's like mm-hmm. mailing list. And this newsletter arrived from her mail, from her newsletter called Mirabellary. Mm-hmm is an open newsletter um, when I was like in the early stages of writing the book um, which had this amazing passage on the you in which I cite in the book which is great because I was fig- I was trying to decide like am I going to give people you know what am I going to how am I going to refer to people am I just going to use their initial or am I just gonna I, I, I wanted to be it to be anonymous I also didn't want people you know writing non-fiction which is a broad church nonfiction, um, but I didn't want people to feel surveilled by me or overlooked in the text. Um, I wanted to be able because I'm using life, the material of life, to do thinking with. So it's important for me that I can use those interactions to do thinking with. But I don't. It's not a kind of detective forensic account of my life in a way. It's not truly biographical in that sense that you can't really find out about who I know or you know in the text it's not about that it's about using the eye and using life to do thinking with um so it wasn't about naming people in that way but nonetheless it's very intimate you know detailed portraits of interactions with people in my life but I'm trying to I don't want to just leave it there with like oh, she's hanging out with her friend called X. I wanted those interactions to produce something, to produce an understanding of of empathy or an understanding of difference or an understanding of something rather than it being a story about a person in that way. Like when you're, yeah. So, so yeah, and I think I, I'm also quite, I can be quite shy. Um... I can find it hard to express my feelings to friends sometimes or people in general. So, uh, but in a way creating an addressee for me as well, helped me say things that I felt, felt, which was important information for the book um, because I was trying to access those feelings as part of the picture of what I'm talking about, about what it is to cook for people and what it is to be a person. Um, and it was very uncom- it can be uncomfortable and difficult to do that. Uh, it's, it's very hard to say how you feel. <laughs> I'm very bad at it. My therapist, who I, I'm not seeing anymore, but I was when I was writing the book, it's like, 
you're so basic, you know, well, you shouldn't say that. She wouldn't say that, but effectively she's like, why are you talking about Odysseus to me? Or why are you talking about Adorno? <laughs> How do you feel? And that's something I could really never or almost never really get to because I found it so hard. Um, so also having that intimacy of that you addressee, I think helped me do that work in the book, which is important, which is important part of the book's thing and a purpose. Um, but notably I can mainly, those intimate moments mainly come towards the end of the book. And then I chronologically, which is also chronologically when I wrote them towards the end of the process, when I had, you know, slowly began to, begun to crack, crack my self open to some extent of, you know, get to a point where I could be more emotional. <clears throat> yeah. As you sort of revealed in, in, in our conversation, um, there's, there's very much, a there is a specific and, uh, you know, soon to arrive new you, um, <laughs> in this relationship of yours. And, yeah, I, I guess I am sort of wondering as that's coming closer. I mean, you're about to <laughs> you're about to turn physically into a being that will feed. <laughs> um, but it'll be more essential than for pleasure to start with, right? Yeah. Um, I guess. Yes. Uh <laughs> it's everything. It's the it's the whole world, isn't it, to a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure, and I, well, I guess it's also pleasurable to the child. Um, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's going to evolve, right? That that's the fun part. Like you see all those TikTok videos where it's like, this baby tasting tasting kiwi for the first time. (laughs) Like, yeah, um, that's, and you really do get to the amount of information contained in food when you watch young children try foods for the first time and the kind of total mind bending, crazy intimacy and physical experience of eating. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I mean, I don't know how I'm going to feed this child or if I'll be able to do, you know, feed from my own body or feed from Mm -hmm. formula or whatever, or a mixture of both. Um, But so it's a very strange thing. It's a it's a strange thing to be eating to produce food from the body is existentially mad. It's um, very alien. <laughs> it, it feels yeah. very alien for yeah. For our and um, and that's another that makes me nervous as well around gender and that kind of thing. How I'll be perceived and it's very public and all that mm-hmm. kind of that, that kind of stuff. Something I'll be navigating. Yeah. But um, I'm, my partner is definitely going to be involved in feeding the child as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't aspire to be the only the only one doing that. For sure, it's just if, if you've had a, if you've had such an exciting relationship with feeding to the point that it produced this book, mm. it's really exciting to know to think about what where that's going to go with this new sort of you know. Avenue. I hope so. Yeah, I hope I. I did initially find it hard to write about being pregnant mm-hmm. um, in my notebook because it felt so. 
uh, I don't know, existentially transitional. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. um, I did write, I, I did have a miscarriage last year and I wrote a long essay for Granta about it, um, mm-hmm. which came out last month. It took them ages to publish it. But anyway, I wrote it uh, about a year ago, <clears throat> um, but it came out in December. Um, because I, anyway, I mean, I, I'm just, there's a lot of my, there's a lot of my feelings in that text about pregnancy and children in general. I think my favorite person I've really read on what it is to be a parent is, is Natalia Ginsburg. I uh, thought it was going to be her, Rachel. I really I was like, who's it going to be? <laughs> R- Rachel, Rachel Roddy. Cusk or, uh, oh, Rachel Ginsburg. Cusk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Ra- Rachel Roddy. Rachel Roddy is also a brilliant British food writer who lives she's lived in Italy for about 20 years I'm just I'm just bringing okay. her into this now but uh she she is a parent and um she really is herself and hasn't turned her life into baby she has a I think he's 10 now but the way she is a parent is 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 very cool but anyway um I highly recommend her writing about Roman food if anyone's interested um she's got very successful books anyway but yeah Natalia Ginsburg in the in the final essay of her book of uh, essays called The Little Virtues and I cite this in the essay that I wrote for Granta um she she writes that you know your, your child cannot be your vocation um mm. because you know also remembering the agency of the child it's not you, you know it's not something you can endlessly make. They have, they make, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're separate to you. And it's, it's better to um, show them how that they can love life for themselves by loving the things that you do and loving your, your own life. Um, it's much longer and more articulate, more articulate than that, what she writes. But um, anyway, the, the essay that I wrote about the miscarriage, but also about pregnancy is called Harris Specs. Did you, did you know what Harris Specs is? Mm-mm. I don't. Harris Specs is an ancient Roman um, soothsayer, fortune teller, but they looked at um, animal entrails to predict the future. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Which was uncannily like experiencing a miscarriage because you're constantly interrogating oh, wow. literally your own traces of, of, of bodily stuff to try and figure out what the fuck's going on because it's very unclear what's going on even with loads of medical equipment it's still unclear what's going on really anyway I'm mm-hmm. speaking about it very freely now but that was that was a tricky essay to write and maybe give a content warning I don't know I'm sorry I shouldn't have just sprung that on you no not at all I'm gonna go read it right now I haven't <laughs> read it prior um I can't imagine what that experience was and I don't know. It sounds like a weird thing to say. I'm looking forward to reading. <laughs> well, I found it an interesting experience, I think, because like, a bit like with cooking, and you know, there's lots of language around those, those experiences that are gendered. That, um, mm. Well, it is, you know, that it's a tragedy or it's inherently a tragedy or that it's very sentimental or you must be, you must be grieving or X, Y, and Z that mm-hmm. felt not right for my experience so it felt a bit like with small fires in a way it felt important for me to um write about cooking and all its complexity and difficulty and brilliance and strangeness I wanted to to write about that experience in a way that felt true to me as well um 
yeah anyway I, I don't know I, I hope I'm able to write about being a parent um, I, I'm inspired by a Bernadette Mayer's writing I just read the mm -hmm. letters that Bernadette and Rosemary Mayer wrote to each other about their lives making art and writing and 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 Bernadette's being a parent and stuff and um and then I've been reading Midwinter Day recently as well which is got so much about children and cooking in it in a highly brilliant poetic way I'm not worried <laughs> if uh, okay. it's it's clearly I mean you're one of those writers <laughs> to me anyways and that's what's like come across in, in small fighters and I mean I interview so many writers on the show, so a sort of very normative outlook is, you know, people write to make sense of the things that don't necessarily coalesce or make sense for them. And but there's just some certain there's certain types of writing that are more clearly that than others. You know, fiction hides that a little bit better. Um, but it seems to me that. I'm just not worried about your writing because it seems to me that you will be thinking about this um, and Thanks. thus you will go to the pen to sort of make sense of it in whatever ways you need. Does, you know what I mean? Yeah, thanks. I hope so. I think all writers, sometimes you feel like a panic mm -hmm. about things. But, but then it's a bit like cooking when I, then, when I just go and do it and you just get in the zone. It's so nice. Yeah. But also, I think yeah. there's a really good quote as well by Vivian Gornick, actually, the um, mm -hmm. American writer, um, about writing as work, which is also really, I found so useful when I was writing the book and finding it hard. Um, mm -hmm. In one of her essays, I can't remember which it, which book it's in. It might be in Approaching Eye Level. I can't remember. It's too, I've read two of her essay collections. Mm -hmm. um, where she said she's writing about feminism, writing about work and uh, writing. And she says, it's not the work that will save you in a, with a capital letter in this idea of the kind of the grand concept of the work, like being an artist and a kind of grand gesture. Mm -hmm. She's like, it's the daily miserable task of sitting down at the desk. You know, that's where, where revelation or liberation lies. And when you're sort of dreading doing something like writing a book or whatever it is, um, remembering that it's work and that it's difficult and you have to do it and it's labor is is so useful because it won't just feel like rolling around in a field of, field of flowers <laughs> it you've no. got to do and you've got to you've got to think and you've got to really apply yourself um and then when you do that you can have these ecstatic moments of, of understanding that come to you and but you've got to do the labor to get there and that's you know, both annoying and brilliant at the same time. But I also just found it, oh, you know, I was like, oh, I'm having a hard day. It's like, oh, wait, yeah, of course it, it is hard. I'm doing something hard, you know. So, so anyway, often I have, I tell myself that when I need to get back to writing, like, um, yes, it is hard. But you, mm -hmm. when you do it, then you'll find something out and that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like with cooking as well. Absolutely. Thank you for this book as well. Again, it, as someone who, you know, has a very loving relationship to this thing, and that's also sometimes fraught. It, it this text really spoke to me in many ways. So, so thank you for that. Thanks.
Thanks so much. And um, listeners, you can go ahead and pick up a copy of Small Fires at Pulp Books in Montreal or wherever you get your your local indie booksellers are. And um, thanks again, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me.